Good to see all of you this morning. Uh, Pastor Ray has got something wrong. I don't know. <laughs> something with his uh, saliva glands, and he still has a cough, too, so keep him in your prayers. Um, so we're going to be in Daniel chapter 9 this morning. going to read the we'll read the whole chapter then we'll pray If you don't have a Bible raise your hand one of the ushers will, will come and get it, give one to you In the first year of Darius the son of Ahasuerus of the lineage of the Medes who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of this reign, I, Daniel, understood of the books, the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. We have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes, to our fathers and all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to shame, but to us shame of face, as it is this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those near and those afar, far off in all the countries to which you have driven them because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. O Lord, to us belongs shame of face, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord God belong mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. Yes, all Israel has transgressed your law and has departed so as not to obey your voice. Therefore, the curse of the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. And he has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us, and against our judges who judged us by bringing upon us great disaster. For under the whole of heaven, such has never been done as what has been done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all the disasters come upon us, yet we have made our prayer before the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquity, iniquities and understand your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept the disaster in mind and brought it upon us. For the Lord God is righteous in all the works which he does, though we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made yourself a name as it is this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people are a reproach to all those around us. Now, therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications, and for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. O oh my God, incline our ear and 
here. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God. For your city and your people are called by your name. Now while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God. Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I have seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I came to you, or I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved, and therefore consider the matter and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in, bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. <laughs> know, therefore, and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince... There shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again in the wall, even in troublesome times. And after 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood. And till the end of the war, desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which determined is poured out on the desolate. Or desolation is another. Lord, uh, we, we do thank you for, uh, for your word to us uh, to bring clarity of understanding as you did to Daniel. As we seek your face, Lord, you reveal to us um, who you are and your purposes and plans, Lord, that uh, you... You give us a sense of hope, Lord, even though there is a, the terror of judgment, Lord. Uh, Lord, there's also uh, the hope of redemption and the hope of uh, restoration. And Daniel received that hope from you, Lord. And uh, Lord, we pray that our hearts would be filled with hope as we come and Ray T. takes us through the book of Revelation, uh, that you would uh, give us that hope of the return of Jesus Christ, Lord. And, uh, Lord, just prepare our hearts this morning to receive your word, Lord. Uh, give us clarity of understanding to discern these things. And, uh, Lord, compare scripture with scripture and try to understand uh, what you mean here. So bless our time together, and uh, we thank you for our fellowship. We thank you for, Lord, uh, you, you never leave us nor forsake us, even when sometimes it feels like circumstantially, Lord, We've been forsaken, but you don't forsake us, Lord. You had a plan for Israel even in their desolation and even in their destruction of the city and the physical places. Uh, you had a plan for them uh, as a nation. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I thought this was a fitting chapter. You know, we've been talking a lot about how Revelation's coming, and this is actually probably one of the key chapters to understanding Revelation all eventually. So, um, so we take a look at it this morning and uh, try to get through it. It's kind of a lo longer chapter, but that we'll, we'll try to move through it quickly. Um, so Daniel here 
He's, you know, under the reign of the Medes and the Persians, he outlasted the Babylonian Empire. Um, and the Medes and the Persians had come in. And here, um, in the first year of King Ahasuerus, uh, during his reign, he, he was read somehow he had come in contact with one of the scrolls of, or the scrolls of Jeremiah. Um, and, you know, how he got that, we don't know exactly. He was brought away many, many years earlier into Babylon. Um, and, uh, you know, he had lived there for during the entire reign of Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuchadnezzar's son and then uh, Belshazzar. And then you guys remember the writing on the wall. And then that night, uh, the Medes and the Persians came in and conquered Babylon. Um, so Daniel here somehow has a scroll and he's reading through it and he understands that, that there was a timeline from the book of Jeremiah. There was a, a, a limited period that this uh, being taken away would happen. And in understanding that, he decided that he wanted to seek the Lord for it to be brought to pass uh, because he knew that God had promised it to his people. So just a reference, this is where he, I, th I think if we look back at Jeremiah, so if you turn to Jeremiah chapter 25, there's two sections I wanted to look at here quickly. Je Je Jeremiah chapter uh, 25. Verse 12. Then it shall come to pass when 70 years are completed that I will punish the king of Babylon and the nation, the land of the Chaldeans for the iniquity, says the Lord, and I will make it a perpetual desolation. And so I will bring on the land all my words which I have pronounced against it, all that is written in the book which Jeremiah had prophesied concerning all the nations. So one of the key prophecies that Jeremiah had was regarding Babylon. You know, and the prophet Habakkuk, um, couldn't understand why God would use a wicked nation to judge a more righteous nation, but they were his people, and they had truth, and they became like the nations around them, even though they had the truth. And so God brought judgment to be an example to the nations around them, but it didn't make Babylon scot-free, if you will. You know, it, the, the timing was just different, right? So in the book of Jeremiah, he prophesied against Babylon as well, that they would be judged eventually, even though God was using them as an instrument of judgment upon Judah and Jerusalem. <clears throat> so then jump over to Jeremiah 29, and this is more specific to bringing them home. Verse 10. For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. So he was promising them that you're going to be taken away. You might as well submit yourself to it. Otherwise, you're going to go through greater hardship if you don't. And they didn't. They went, to, they went and looked to, to the help of Egypt. They never sought the Lord. They never listened to Jeremiah. They stuck him in a pit. And, um, yeah, they tried to kill him. Exactly. So... He goes on here, but the Lord still had hope for them, even though of, uh, he was trying to correct the rebellion. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray and to me, and I will listen to you. 
and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart, and I will be found by you, says the Lord. And I will bring back your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations from which the places where I have driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you to the place from which I cause you to be carried away captive. And you know, that promise was to them throughout the scriptures, even in the law itself, the Torah, it was there, that they could seek the Lord and he would bring them back. And I think Daniel, as he read through the scrolls, it's just so clear to him, um, you know, the, the promise of God to bring them back as a nation, and it just shows the mercy of God. And I think Daniel just wants to tap into that, you know, as he's praying here. He's, he really has it on his heart to seek the Lord <clears throat> and to, to find out, okay, Lord, what are you going to do here, you know? I know what you've said in your word, that you want to bring us back, but, uh, you know, how are you going to do that specifically? Um, and I think in him realizing it, he had the, the only response he could really have was, you know, here I am, I've been taken away captive, right, myself. He was one of the first to get taken away by the Babylonians. As they went, they took away the best of the nation, so the princes, the royalty, the most uh, intelligent, and Daniel was among them, if not the greatest among them. And they took them away, and here Daniel is. He's been here basically in Babylon since he was a kid. And, um, and now there's a whole other empire there, and he's kind of like wondering, God, what's going on? He's, it's big picture mode for Daniel, and he's seeking out in the scriptures, what are you doing, Lord? And then he decides, I'm going to seek the Lord. You know, I'm going to pray and find what his will is. Um, and I think this devotion that Daniel had is an example to us. It's like, okay, you know, we have our situations, and, uh, you know, Daniel didn't um, look at his situation and say, oh, woe is me, you know. I mean, the guy was made a eunuch, you know, and being taken away, which is pretty, pretty rough thing. And he basically was taken away before everyone else, so he had to go through the worst of it. And through it all, his example was, like, spotless, you know. He had, like, such a heart for God, and uh, he was willing to trust in the Lord and be a bold witness, not to give in to the idolatry of this land from far away, um, not to bow down to these idols, not to, uh, you know, stop praying when they were trying to get him to stop pray, praying, and he was thrown into the lion's den. All the things that happened in Daniel's life, you know, he could have kind of said, woe is me, you know, you know and he didn't. Um, he continued to seek the Lord. He had a heart after the Lord. And, and so uh, here, this devotion comes out. So... Here in verse 3, he says he sets his face toward the Lord to make requests by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Um, so supplications making a request, right? It's, I want to ask God for something specific. And fasting is, I got to set us, I got to get every distraction out of the way. You know, food can be a distraction. Uh, and, and it's not just food, but the world. It, I think fasting represent for us represents being just, all we're taking care of is the physical needs that we have, right? We can feed ourselves, we can entertain ourselves, and there's nothing per se wrong with that, but when we decide, oh, I'm going to seek the Lord, we need to, to set those things aside. I mean, uh, you, this thing, right? <laughs> I get this thing in the morning, and it, it, it's the quiet time killer, you know? <laughs> um, 
the news or whatever, you know, I got to get my updates or a mess, even an email message, it can ca cause this trail, right? Um, or a sports game or something, you know, that comes on that just kind of draws your attention away when you're actually trying to seek the Lord, right? Uh, let's just be honest, it's, it's easy uh, for us to get distracted. And it's not just that, but it's all the cares of, of this life, you know, taking care of our jobs, our homes, our families. So we really got to make it a point to seek the Lord um, and set aside time for him. Um, and so Daniel did that here in this particular instance. And so he goes on and he says, I prayed to the Lord, verse 4, and made confession. And so, oh, I'm sorry, one other thing, sackcloth and ashes, there's a humility with that, right? There's a humility behind that, that, you know, I'm nothing. And that's going to come out in his prayer. Like he doesn't see himself as something higher than the people who were actually leading the people astray. He sees himself in the same bucket. He sees himself in the same grouping. We'll talk about that more in a minute. But he prayed, uh, verse 4 here, to the Lord his God, and he made confession. And so we're going to see this contrast as we go through this. We're going to, I'm going to take you through and just try to draw out some things. We're going to see a contrast between Daniel and his people and their shame and their sinfulness and God, his holiness, his righteousness, his character, his mercy, all these things that we fall short, so short in. Um, so this contrast really comes out here. And so, um, you know, you're great and awesome, God. You keep your covenant and your mercy to them that love you, and you keep your commandments. Um, but we, verse 5, have sinned and committed iniquity. So keep your eyes on some of these terms, iniquity, we have done wickedly and rebelled, so iniquity and rebellion, and departing from your precepts and your judgments, and neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes, to our fathers and all the people of the land. And, uh, but then verse 7, shame to, of face to us, um, and, you know, uh, and then verse 8 there, that we have shame again, and because we have sinned against you. Um, and so there's, there's a few things that come out there. There's the, uh, the sin, the iniquity, and the rebellion. And, you know, there's another thing that even comes out as we go is the transgression. And so those four things kind of really come out there as Daniel identifies those areas of sinfulness in the people. And if we kind of just break those down a little bit, um, you know, sinfulness is basically missing the mark, right? It's like archery, right? You're, you're in, when you're shooting at a target, if you miss the bullseye, they would say, sin, you know, back way back in the day, right? Which was missing the mark, uh, missing perfection. And obviously the standard is God. God is the standard of perfection. That's how he actually designed us was to be perfect. But we fell. We decided with Adam and Eve, well, Adam, uh, mainly decided for mankind that uh, he was going to sin. And then that was passed on from him throughout uh, generations, and we inherit that sinful nature, right? So the sinfulness, missing the mark. And I think we miss the mark in both our failure to do what's right and in our choices to do what's wrong. So both in the positive and the negative, we, we fall short. Um, and then, you know, transgression and rebellion, I think, go hand in hand. 
You know, there was a guy in the Old Testament who um, he took a Babylonianish garment in, in the city of Ai, right? And uh, what it ended up doing is bringing defeat to the Israelites as they were going into the land. They had defeated Jericho, and then they went to Ai, and they, they lost. And they were like, why did they lose? Um, and it was because this one guy took this Babylonian garment, and he held on to it. It was like an idolatrous thing for him. And God saw right through it, and he wouldn't bless the sinfulness of this man amidst the nation. And so Joshua had to kind of weed it out. But it was this very high-handed thing, uh, high-handed in the sense of, you know, he committed it willfully, and he fully knew what he was doing was wrong, and yet he did it anyways. And we do that. We fully know things are wrong, and we commit it anyways, whether it's because of we have a bent towards that thing or we have a rebellion in our um, decisions you know, towards God. And I think both transgression is that sort of flagrant crossing the line that we're so capable of committing with God. Thankfully, in the New Testament, you know, we don't have the... When we commit... Um, this outright transgression, right? We're not put to death for our sins. Whereas in the Old Testament, that's what happened to that man. He, had to, he was put to death. Um, so, and then iniquity is sort of our crooked, crookedness. You know, we have this tendency towards uh, doing the wrong thing. You know, the tendency towards making the wrong decision and not doing the right thing. And so Daniel identifies those things. And all of that is wrapped up in our rebellion. And when God reveals himself to us and we still resist him, that's, that's really core rebellion, you know, that he's talking about here. Um, and that's what happens is he says um, that he confirmed his words against us in verse 12, and he spoke against us. Um, and, that, and in verse 11, too, that, that they didn't heed the law of Moses, the servant of God. Um, And so one of the things that happens in, uh, to us is that we receive the word, we have this sinful tendency, and we don't respond to the word. And so whether in just because we're, our hearts are darkened towards it or, um, you know, we're just outright rebelling, we resist the, the word of God as it comes in to correct us, Right. And that's why God sent the prophets, and he, he calls that out here as well as we read through, that God sent the prophets as, in a sense, his troubleshooters, his people who would go and identify where they went wrong, that they didn't obey. For, for the, seven, the reason it was 70 years is because there were 70 Sabbaths that they did not let the land rest, right? The seventh year they were supposed to let the land rest. They didn't obey that, the commandment to let the land rest. Each, they just continued to labor, you know, on that seventh year. Uh, and not only that, and even more so, the idolatry of, that they became like the nations around them, right, ultimately. And yet they were supposed to be a light to the nations around them. So Daniel here is identifying those things. And I think what, what you see, though, with Daniel, you know, there's these pronouns like we, right, we, I, uh, you know, and um, he doesn't see the people as separate from you know, the problem, He's, or as the cause of the problem. He sees himself in that mix. And I think it really kind of identifies an issue that we have at times as believers. We think of ourselves 
as doing pretty good uh, versus either the world or even other believers. We think that we're on this pedestal at times. And I think it's really dangerous. Actually, you know, Doug Rutter, we used to talk a lot after um, service. So we would have, you know, prayer, and then we'd have service, and then, you know, after, after second service, Doug and I would hang out in the cafe and talk. And one of the things that would really grieve him was when he would sense people praying like them, right? And, and I know that it was his own brokenness in his heart. Um, and it taught me something, you know, that I'm not any different than the world, right? I'm not any better than the world. I might be better off in that I'm saved, but it's only the fact that Jesus has bought me. And I think if we don't lose that, right, it brings an authenticity to our message. <clears throat> you know, it brings a, a reality of what Christ has done in our lives. Otherwise, you know, we come across as being, uh, you know, better than thou, if you will, or uh, mightier than thou, or whatever they say. You know, I can't think of the, the term. Holier than thou, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we're not holier than them without Christ, so there's nothing in, in us. And I think this can happen on a, um, at a bigger, you know, if, if we take it to the bigger dialogue in the culture, right, especially in politics, we can kind of, there's a big, there's a view that Christians can come across uh, that way. And it might be true. Christians may come across that way. There might be Christians. I remember seeing, I remember, you know, we would talk, we went to uh, the Hill Cumora pageant once to, to share the gospel with Mormons, right? And uh, there was a guy on the outside with a loudspeaker, like the entire time that was saying, you're all going to hell kind of thing. And he kind of came across as holier than thou, you know. <laughs> um, but, you know, that can, can happen. And I think Satan will always try to bring that out when that happens in the culture, like when there are groups of people. So they kind of actually bring a stain to the name of Christ where he was such a humble, you know, he was the servant king, right? Um, but we have a uh, responsibility, right, for the way, when the world is watching us and observing us to come across not as holier than now, but as like Daniel, you know, that we're ashamed of what we were. And, you know, when it, whether it's the sin of homosexuality or some of these other sins that we look at, we can have an attitude like that. But Paul said to the Corinthian church, such were some of you, you know, yet we were washed, we were cleansed. And I think that Daniel here really exemplified uh, that humility and not seeing himself as something better than the, the, the people around him, but uh, he was in the same boat, even though you realize Daniel never, there's nothing ever said badly about Daniel. And in Ezekiel chapter 14, actually, the prophet talks about how he was in the same kind of grouping as guys like Noah and Job, you know, these guys that were men of faith. And even with Noah and Job, there were things that were mentioned that were wrong with them. The only other person that Noah, God didn't mention anything wrong with was like Joseph, you know, and maybe Joshua, you know. So these guys that uh, really exemplified uh, Christ in the Old Testament, um, 
And Daniel was one of the one of the the best of them, you know. And yet he saw himself not as holier than thou, but as a we, you know, as us. That we're the ones that sinned. Um, so as he goes through this and he repents and he cries out, he also makes supplication. So let's take it down here to verse 16. Um, he says, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers. Uh, and, you know, Jerusalem and your people are a reproach to all those around us. And then he says, hear, a, hear the prayer of, servant, of your servant and his supplications in verse 17. And cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. So he's asking for a restoration and a favor again to be turned to Jerusalem, that God's plan would then be back at Jerusalem for the nation. <clears throat> and he says, incline your ear and open your eyes and see the desolations. And then he says, we do not present our supplication before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. And that's something to remember that, you know, as we pray, part of what we're trying to do is find out what God's will is, right? Daniel found out what God's will is through searching the scriptures. He knew that God wanted to do this incredible thing to restore the nation, bring him back. He didn't know exactly how it was going to happen, but he knew that God wanted to. And he knew that it was in God's honor and glory for that to happen. And so he appealed in his prayer to that. Um, in the same way, God has made promises to us. Right? God has made New Testament promises to us that are very clear. For example, he's given us the promise of his Holy Spirit so that we can be bold witnesses. Now, we can ask him, right? If you ask, is he going to give you a stone? No, he's going to give you what he told you he's going to give you. But it, with the heart of Daniel here, it was honest, it was sincere, it was broken, repentant. All those things characterized his prayer. And it was also based on God's glory, right? And so Daniel, or in us praying for the Holy Spirit, what, what, is, the, what is our motive in it? Are we wanting his power and his glory? Or are we wanting power for our own glory and our own... Uh, I, I can honestly say, and there were times in my life where I prayed for the Holy Spirit, and in my heart there was that crooked bent, the iniquity, right? <laughs> where it's not even so much um, I could vocalize it or I could identify it. It was like I, it was just pride, you know. Pride is there. It's like you want that so other people can recognize you. But when we've been broken like Daniel and we see, what, you know, with his life that he's been through, he was broken, um, where our motives become more purified, right? We, we ask for the right reasons, because we're not asking for ourselves, we've been brought to a point where we really want God's glory. And I think that's a refining process in our lives. And so, for example, with the promise of the Holy Spirit, he desires to give us the Holy Spirit so that we can be a witness, so that we can testify of him, so that we can have the gifts that he's desired for us and that he would ultimately uh, get glory and that we would bring attention to who Jesus is. Um, and there are many other examples in the New Testament of promises that we can seek the Lord for. And also, too, you know, we have specific situations. You know, Paul, the apostle, sought the Lord um, with Barnabas, 
and some other guys there in Acts chapter 13, and God says, separate them to me, you know, for the work of the ministry. And so at that point, God specifically had a calling on them to go out and to be missionaries. And the same way God has a calling for us, too, that God would use us in some way. So there's the general promises that God give us, but then there's also the explicit plan for us individually that God wants to do through our lives. Um, and, and we need to seek the Lord to find out what those things are, not for our sakes, right, but for his sake and for his glory. And so any time that I'm seeking the Lord for his will in my life, there's always this point where I have to kind of set everything on the table. And what I mean by that is I have certain desires, intentions, hopes, right? And sometimes you got to lay it on the table and just say, God, it's yours, right? I know I want this, and it's okay to want good things. It's okay to want to be married if you're not married. That's okay. It's good. But I'm laying it on the table, Lord. Not my will be done, but you, you, your will be done. Help me, Lord. Sustain me, you know, until the point you, your timing is reached. And we can be assured that God will fulfill his promises to us when we trust in him. And we, I call it banking on him. It's like, you know, when you're skiing, not that I've ever skied, but when you're skiing, you're really relying on your, your tools, right? Um, a mountain bike. So, but skiing's a little bit more uh, relatable to people here. So, uh, you know, you're relying on your poles and your, your skis, and you bank on those things. You trust that they're going to work, and hopefully they don't break. Um, and I do the same thing when I'm flying down a hill at 30 miles an hour. You know, I make sure those brakes work, you know. Um, and we can bank on the Lord. He's trustworthy. He's much more reliable than any kind of equipment we can buy. Um, so here we get to now uh, the prophecy. So da Daniel's prayer is answered um, in part. So in the part of it is that God gives them hope and reassurance and revelation, right? Uh, and so with the repentance and the seeking of him, God gives him a greater revelation. <clears throat> so he says, he sends the angel Gabriel in verses 20 through 23. And even from the very moment that Daniel began to pray, uh, Gabriel said, uh, I've been sent to you. He says there in verse 21 that, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, even reaching me at the time of the evening offering. Um, and then he says, and he informed me and talked with me, verse 22, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. Even at the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I came to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. So God sends this angel, Gabriel, the same angel who gave Mary the promise of that she would bear the Messiah, uh, came to Daniel, who had appeared to him previously. Um, and he then gives this prophecy of what was going to happen, these 70 weeks. And, you know, weeks is better interpreted 77s, you know, if you count 77s, right? <laughs> Um, and, you know, Daniel in his mind had the 70 years in focus because of the prophecy of Jeremiah, right, that after 70 years were accomplished. But 
Gabriel gives him a greater picture of what's going on. And he answers the questions that Daniel has, that there would be a restoration. It wouldn't be something Daniel would see, but it would be a promise that he'd be able to hold on to, as we'll read through this. But he says there that he's greatly beloved. Um, and so I think that's a reassurance to us, you know, despite our brokenness. You know, when we come to God and, and brokenness and humility, God reassures us oftentimes with his love for us, right? He builds us back up. And <laughs> we go down to the Sandy Cove conference every year. And uh, for me lately, it's been when I can. But I've been there many, year, been there many years, and uh, a lot of times what happens is you get broken, right? As you hear the word and you see how, uh, in ministry especially, how, short, how many shortcomings you have, but then you also get rebuilt up. He reassures us of his love. And I think John, John is sort of an um, interesting New Testament parallel to, to Daniel, that he was one who was, he saw himself as beloved of the Lord, you know, the one who Jesus loved. And he was the one that would receive the revelation of Jesus Christ, right, the, the, and the Gospel of John. It's just a, a clear picture of who Jesus was. And Daniel here <clears throat> now receives a revelation, a picture into what God was going to do with the nation of Israel. <clears throat> so he says here, 70 weeks are determined, 77s for your people and for your holy city. And it's pretty, pretty much commonly understood that these 70 weeks are years, are periods of years. So one week would be a seven-year time frame. Um, so that, that's pretty commonly understood because nothing, nothing else really makes sense if you don't translate it or interpret it that way. And the big picture of things. So, um, so these 490 years, a total of 490 years. And now it's also broken up here. Um, well, hold on one second before we get to that. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity. So, those, so this is the purpose of it that he's going to explain. And these things were some of the things that Daniel mentioned in his prayers, right? Transgressions, sins, and iniquity. Um, and so part of the purpose of this period would be to bring a restoration for these, uh, to finish those things and make an end and then bring reconciliation. So keep that in your mind because that becomes important in the interpretation of what comes later. Um, but then also to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. And a lot of times, you know, this, this chapter is actually pretty controversial from an a interpretation standpoint. Um, so you'll get a lot of different, because of these verses, not so much the first part of it, but because of the verses here at the end, it's pretty controversial. Either from a, a Jewish perspective who doesn't believe in the Messiah, they're going to attack it one way, or uh, from a liberal stamp, a liberal Christian standpoint, it's going to attack it. Uh, and a lot of times what they're attacking is the view of Christ in this um, this particular, these particular verses. So they will question whether or not this is referring to Christ. And you can go into a lot of different studies, but just know that this is a pretty attacked piece. So you've got to tread carefully and when you interpret it. Because if you interpret an error, they can pull that out and use it against you. you know? um, so from an apologetic standpoint, you know, you... Um, you, you kind of got to listen to the different views if you want to take it from that. Now, this morning, 
you know, I'd be happy to talk to anyone about it afterwards. But this morning, most of you are not going to argue with me whether or not this is a Christ uh, view of Christ here. Uh, but there is sometimes question around what it means. So I'll try to bring and explain that sort of thing, right? Um, and so keep those things in mind, the purposes there. And then he goes on. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks, and the street shall be built again and the wall, even in some troublesome time. So there's this division, this dividing up of the 70 weeks into seven weeks, 62 weeks, and then whatever's left over, which is one week. <clears throat> so seven years, right? So that dividing up, starts to question, what does it mean? Well, <clears throat> so, that, and the, when does it begin? Well, it begins from the time uh, to restore, the command to go for, that go, the command goes forth to restore and rebuild uh, Jerusalem. And so, um, and the other part of that is that it'll, it'll start when, uh, that's related to that, the street shall be built again and wall. And then, when, when will it end? At least the 69 weeks will end uh, when Messiah the Prince comes in, right? So the seven weeks, what are the seven weeks? And what are the 62 weeks? Well, if you total them up, 69 weeks, I think it's like, what, 490 years? And then you can do the math. Um, you can convert it using prophetic years, which biblically has always been 360 days, prophetic years are. And as you calculate it out, uh, you find the full time of until when Messiah was going to come in, right? Or when this anointed one, this anointed prince was going to come in. Um, and so that commandment, though, then the question is, when, who gave the commandment? When did it happen? Well, there's a couple different folks in the Old Testament that gave commands to rebuild. Uh, the first three guys were Cyrus. Cyrus gave a command to rebuild um, the temple. And then Darius reassured that command, right, to rebuild the temple. And then Artaxerxes gave another command to rebuild the temple. So there was three, three temple commands, right? So which one is it? But there was another command. The fourth command by Artaxerxes was to rebuild the city and to rebuild the streets, and to rebuild the, uh, the walls. And that was given during the time of Nehemiah, okay? And, and that official command was, yeah, chapter 2 of Nehemiah. And, and you can read through those in the Bible, all those commands. And so that, that point, and that's the only one where there's this command uh, to rebuild and refortify the city. And the language there in verse 25 is, speaks of, of refortification of the city and rebuilding the walls. Now, they may have built some walls when they were rebuilding the temple. They may have built some houses around that, but their focus wasn't on rebuilding the city and fortifying the city. Everything around the time of Nehemiah was, it was troublesome. It was rebuilding and refortification, right? They were fighting while they were, uh, while they were trying to rebuild the temple. They'd have, you know, a hammer in one hand and a sword in the other, you know. Um, and one of the guys was named Tobiah. <laughs> That's my son's name. <laughs> that was coming against them. It was Sambalat and Tobiah, you know. There's other good guys in the Old Testament uh, that's named Tobiah, so, uh, and it's, it means something good, too. 
I forget what it means, but <laughs> Toby, that's, we just had a baby a month ago, so uh, my wife just had a baby. <laughs> so um, So yeah, so uh, that time, though, if you calculate it out, and there's a guy named Sir Ro uh, Robert Anderson or something like that, I think his name was, he calculated it out. And it was like uh, 700 and, or 100 and something thousand days. 173,880 days. Thank you. <laughs> Someone studied this already, so. Come on up and help me. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, yeah, so when you, when you calculate it out from that commandment until the time, it's around 32 AD, right, which was about the time when Jesus came in. Uh, on the donkey, right, the, the uh, triumphal entry of Jesus. So they laid the palms down, and in he came. And so this is an exact fulfillment. And that's one of the reasons why this is a highly uh, attacked prophecy, because it's so accurate, right? Um, and even if the calculation, like, let's say it's not, um, I mean, there's interpretation here, right? So even if it's not 360 prophetic days, even if it's just calendar days, it still brings us in that general time frame, right? And so we don't really exactly know when Jesus uh, died and when he entered into Jerusalem. So there is some variability there. But still, it is definitely in that general time frame, around 30 to 32 AD, even when he calculated it out. So, so, um, The fact that this is Messiah, the prince, is pretty important. And I think the correct interpretation is like, because this is the anointed one, Mashiach, yeah, uh, it, it, you can use it for other things. It was, used, it was used for Cyrus, right, to talk about him. He's obviously not the Messiah. He was a Gentile king. But God used him as a, in a certain time to, to kind of bring back the nation to build the temple, right? He had the command to do that when they were facing great difficulty in these under the, uh, the Babylonian Empire, at least. And there's other folks, you know, when they re refer to the high priest they, and he was anointed, they would talk about that word Mashiach, or a king would be anointed, that, that word. But here he's a prince and he's a king. And this next part, though, I think is the key, because after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. So, and what is the seven weeks, too? The seven weeks is probably how long it took for Nehemiah to rebuild the city, right? That's, that's the clearest explanation of about 49 years. It took him about a generation to rebuild the city and refortify it. But here, after the 62 weeks, uh, Messiah shall be cut off, uh, but not for himself. So that's an interesting, this Messiah, this anointed one, uh, is then cut off. And it's the only interpretation that makes sense that this is, you know, God's suffering servant who he pointed to in many, towards in many other scriptures in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, you know, among many others. Um, and so that's obviously speaking of Jesus being crucified after the 62 weeks and the total of the 69 weeks. But there's still this one week left over. Um, and so he goes on, he says, And the people of the prince who is to come, this is a different prince now, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. 
And so that may be that the people of the prince, right, the Roman people, uh, this, you know, the armies of Rome under Titus destroyed Jerusalem in AD 70, right? It just totally wiped it out, and it was like a flood. The people of the prince, referring back to the prince identified earlier in Daniel, right? There was going to be this leader that came up, and he was out of the, uh, the fourth beast, right? That was like the, the, the legs of uh, iron and clay mingled together, which spoke of the Roman Empire, and which that's who came in and destroyed um, Jerusalem in 70 AD. But there's this prince that still hasn't been uh, clearly identified, but he says in verse 27, then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. Speaking of this prince, but in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on a wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even unto the cons consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate or on the desolator. Uh, so there's going to be an end to that prince who is the one who brings in the desolation. And and we know that Jesus even spoke of this in Matthew chapter... We know this is future because of what Jesus spoke. He said in Matthew chapter 24, in verse 15, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, Whoever reads, let him understand. Remember, the context of that whole chapter in 24 is what are the end of these things be, right? That the apostles asked Jesus, and he gave them all the signs of the end. And then in the middle of, the, of it will begin the great tribulation, which Jesus then begins to explain here. And it starts, the middle of the seven years, it starts, uh, let those are that, uh, spoken of the, by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place. Whoever reads, let him understand. So whoever had an understanding of Daniel would refer back to this very chapter that we're reading, and it would be clear to them that someone would, in the future, stand in the holy place and end the sacrifice. Now, for, for the Jews, in order for there to be a sacrifice, there needs to be a temple. There needs to be a place of worship, which we see there's intention to build that temple, but there is no temple today, right? Um, there are, they're kind of storing up the things to get the temple uh, ready, right, the all the utensils to do the worship, uh, all the tools needed, but they haven't been able to politically uh, do that yet. So someone is going to help them in that, and we don't understand how that's all going to play out, but there is going to be some sort of restored temple during this seven-year period. Um, so... What, so, but the key here that I wanted to point out, we're kind of out of time here, but I really wanted to point this out because it really sets the stage for understanding Revelation, is there's this long period, right, of time, right, the 69 weeks. That's already done. That's fulfilled. And in Daniel's time, it wasn't. But it was related specifically to God's people in the city of Jerusalem. That one week still remains, and it hasn't been fulfilled yet, and we know it's yet future. And when we read Revelation, we don't see the church in the majority of the book. But there is reference to the church, right? 
And it's interesting that before Jesus gives the revelation to John, he starts it off with a message of repentance to the churches, right? The things which were, the things which are, the things which are Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And he, and he gives the seven churches a message of repentance, also encouragement as well. And it's sort of this parallel here with Daniel, right? This parallel of, um, you know, our hearts when we're broken and we're repentant and we're soft towards the Lord, we're able to receive revelation from him. And actually for us, it's more illumination, a clearer understanding, because it's not new stuff. Like when you read through the book of Revelation, you know, I, I could have already read it yesterday. It's not new in the sense that God's revealing it fresh, but it's illuminated to me as I read it and understand it. And there's a special blessing to us that, that Ray's going to speak about that stuff when he goes into it. So I'm sort of trying to set the stage for as Ray goes into Revelation, that this is a key thing to understand the rest of Revelation when it actually happens, because there is a tendency now to, um, to interpret it and just kind of spiritualize it. And when I say spirit, you take the things that are talk, it's take, talking about and you just kind of make it this vague battle between good and evil, right? But the reality is it only makes sense in a clear picture when you understand it that these are specific times, specific amounts of years that God has, just like it was specific years that God brought to pass deliverance from Babylon, 70 years, just like it's a specific, you know, 77s that have been determined. Those are very specific things. And so Revelation is a very specific thing. Now, we're not going to be able to identify exactly is this verse a helicopter or is this verse, you know, a Sherman tank. That doesn't really matter. Because what really matters is the revelation of Jesus that Christ is bringing judgment to the earth that rejected him. And then he's setting up his reign on this earth to fulfill this time, all these things that he said back here in verse 24. And he needed to do both. He needed to come once, the first time, to be rejected of men and killed for sin. But also, he had to come again to set up his kingdom so that he can finish the transgression, make an end of sins, make reconciliation for iniquity, bring in everlasting righteousness, seal up the vision and prophecy. That means no more revelation. Uh, like a prophetic revelation. Jesus Christ is the spirit of prophecy, right? the testimony of Jesus Christ. Everything in prophecy speaks of him. Prophecy is not about just hype. It's about a revelation of who Jesus is. Revelation is not revelations. It's a revelation of a person. And to also to the anoint the most holy or the holy place. And when Jesus, uh, in the book of Hebrews, it talks about that, you know, it was not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to anoint and sanctify heavenly things. Only the blood of, a, of God's eternal son could cleanse the heavenly things so that we could come before God, and that's why we can come boldly before the throne of grace. Right? And so um, just an encouragement to you guys and a preparation for what we're going to come in Revelation. So let me, let me finish and pray. And, Lord, we're humbled by... Um, your words as this godly man, Lord, was, uh, was humbled before you, Lord, to seek your face and to know your, uh, your purposes for Israel. And we want to know your purposes for the church in these last days, Lord. We're closer. We don't know the times of the seasons. We don't know exactly when you're going to come. Uh, 
but we can look and we can be ready. We can be like uh, uh, the virgins, the five virgins that were, had their lamps cut and oiled and ready to go. Lord, that's what we want. Like Daniel was ready for, for the nation to be brought back into Jerusalem. We want to be ready. Even if we don't see it, even if we die before the time, Lord, we want to be faithful to you. Help us to be pure and holy in these days we live. In Jesus' name, amen.